Today's episode will include information on the ketogenic diet, exogenous ketones, and fasting. Warning, fasting is not appropriate or even safe for all populations, and parental discretion is advised. The topics discussed in this podcast and diet in general, in my opinion, aren't appropriate for young, impressionable ears. So I encourage you to listen to this episode in private. All right, off to the show. Welcome to The Shaleen Show. Shaleen is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. Hey there, thanks so much for joining me today. So let me give you a little bit of an insight about what you can expect in this podcast. So yes, I'm going to be talking about exogenous ketones. I will also be discussing briefly the ketogenic diet as well as my experience fasting. This is going to be an overview podcast. Now, obviously, if we're going to go into great depth, which I would love to do on the pros and cons of staying on a ketogenic diet long term, this would need to be a much longer podcast. It would also need to be a much longer podcast if we were going to get into the science behind exogenous ketones and the science behind fasting. So instead, what I'm going to do is give you a brief overview of what I did last week, my experience on a recent four-day fast, my experience with exogenous ketones during that time, and getting into ketosis, all right? But if you want more details, like you really want to know more about this stuff, can I give you a suggestion? That might be a better thing to ask. Don't just pick up a book. Don't just rely on one expert's summary of any of these things. Look at research. That's what the 131 method is all about. And that's a program that I developed to kind of help people wade through science. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that we've been every year excited about some new diet planning, including the keto diet. Like, if you look right now on Amazon, like everything is keto, keto, keto. That alone should be a pretty big red flag. In fact, it might even be why you decided to listen to this podcast because when I look in the podcast, category right now, like everything is keto, ketogenic. But about a year and a half ago, everything was paleo. And all the books that were number one on Amazon were all paleo. And and if you went a couple of years before that, it would have been low fat. I mean, these things go in waves. So what I want you to understand after listening to my experience is that this was just a phase. I phase my diet. Your ancestors They didn't necessarily want to phase their diet, but they had to phase their diet because of nutritional resources that were available based on season, which means our bodies biologically have been designed to adapt and to expect phasing, which is kind of how we avoid a plateau. Like, so if you think about it, you know, with exercise, right? Like we've accepted that principle for a long time, probably 20 years or more now that You need to phase your exercise. If you're doing the same thing year after year after year after year, your body's eventually going to plateau and you stop seeing results. Why would we think that nutrition is any different? The same is true there. Anyways, I just want to caution you not to get caught up in any one diet trend. There isn't a diet trend that all of us need to follow indefinitely. We need to figure out what works best for us. There are no hard and fast rules. So before I go much further, I want to let those of you know who are like hardcore keto or hardcore vegetarian or or whatever it is you are hardcore, that it doesn't make sense that we try to force these food rules and prescriptions on everyone. 
it defies common sense. Like even when you're talking about numbers of grams and number of calories and your macros and these ratios that you need to be in to be in ketosis and how long you should stay in ketosis, y'all are fooling yourself if you think we all would succeed in the same way with the same exact numbers and prescriptions, etc. We're so different. We're a different age, different gender, different ethnicity. We come from different regions of the country. We're exposed to different biomes, different toxins. We have different hormones, different stress levels, all of these things, including your dieting history and your exercising history. All of these things factor into how and what we should be eating to be healthy. So let's talk about health for a second. I also want you to know, and by the way, if you're new to my podcast, what's up, girl? Nice to meet you. And to my fellows that are listening, it's great to have you here too. I just want you to know a little bit about my belief and approach to diet and fitness. I think they are components of health, but I have come to the grand realization after 25 years in this industry that I had it all wrong for about 23 of those years, assuming that I could call myself healthy simply because I was quote unquote eating clean and exercising a lot. At many times when I was perhaps even my leanest, I was the least healthy, getting the least amount of sleep under the greatest amount of stress and breaking my body down, aging my body from the inside out. That's what we don't realize. You know, we look at these super lean people on Instagram or, you know, Pinterest, whatever, and we get so excited. We're like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta get healthy like that. Meanwhile, we don't know that the person featured in that photo, their joints ache and they're prematurely aging and their skin looks sullen and sunken and they've got dark circles under the loads of makeup under their eyes. So, you know, we just have to redefine health, number one. And that's what set me off on this journey to discover what is health and how do we create longevity and how do we improve our immune system? And it, it began for me by focusing on my brain health. And that's where this episode picks up brain health. So I conduct multi-day seminars for business owners. One of them is called the Marketing Impact Academy Live. And it's a live three and a half day event where about a thousand people from all over the world come in. In fact, this year we have people from, from Zurich, from Sweden, Lebanon, Canada, that's all over the world, Asia, I mean, so many different countries, and of course, all over the United States, and they fly in to Southern California for a three and a half day seminar. It's intense. And I host the event. Of course, I bring in guest speakers as well. But in general, from about mm, 8am, when I first meet with our VIP guests, until about some nights, 11pm, I've got to be on. And not only do I have to be on, I have to really be conscientious of the fact that these people have spent a good chunk of change to be here and transform their business, their passive income. My content has to be on point. The other speakers need to be on point. The event has to go very smoothly. There's no need for wasted words or wasted moments. So like you really have to be on. You, you have to be at your finest. And I spend a lot of time preparing for this event. Now, every year when I do this event, and I think this was like our sixth year, I'm not sure, fifth year maybe, I don't sleep normally. I'm prepared weeks in advance. I have my slides, I have my presentations, etc. But for whatever reason, my brain just won't shut off. 
I feel very stressed during the event. The pressure usually gives me a headache by about 5 p.m. that I just keep reminding myself this is going to be over in a few days, but the headache hurts so much from the stress. You're going from being on the stage to off the stage to meeting with another speaker or presenter to doing Q&As live with guests, and it's a lot of pressure, and it's so important that your brain is working well, meaning it would be really critical. It'd be a good idea if I was getting adequate sleep, but for whatever reason, I normally cannot sleep during one of these events, number one. Number two, I rarely get a chance to exercise because I'm so overly concerned with the content that I'll wake up hours and hours before my call time for the stage just to overthink and overprepare and, you know, I'm sure I stress way more than I need to. On top of that, because it's so time consuming and every moment is scheduled and then on top of that, you know, someone will stop you in the hallway, want to ask you a question, and then you've just lost that 20-minute window you had to eat something. So in the past, I would be also like really overwhelmed and stressed about my food, right? Because I'm like, how am I going to eat something healthy? I need to eat something healthy. I need something that's low fat. I need to eat right now. And I would be ravenous. I'd be so hungry by the time we would get back to our hotel room that I would just shovel down basically a protein bar or a protein shake or Sometimes I would resort to just like eating fruit, whatever I could eat very quickly and then get back to the stage, which as you might expect, the glucose from eating simple carbohydrates would create this, you know, immediate or soon thereafter crash of my energy. Now, let's also take into consideration another factor, and that is considering the amount of stress an event like this places on an individual, and not just myself, but attendees, because your brain has to work overtime to make all these split-second decisions, like, what do I do with this new information? Should I remember it? Should I write it down? I hope I don't forget it. I also want to remember that I want to do this with this information. And every single time your brain needs to make a decision, it uses glucose to do that. Your brain uses so much more energy than most people recognize. Get this, your brain uses more energy than any other organ in your body. Up to 20% of your body's total energy is used by your brain. And you probably already know this. So think about the last time when you had to make some really difficult decisions. Or maybe a day where you had to be incredibly focused, keep track of details, make difficult decisions, and on top of it, it was an emotional situation. Do you remember how absolutely exhausted you were? Like you could fall asleep in two seconds or you didn't even have the energy to pick your head up off the pillow? Well, that wasn't, you know, we we call it sometimes like I'm so brain dead, but literally you're out of energy. Your brain uses so much more energy than you realize. And it's not just energy. It's also BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. What it is, it's a protein inside your nerve cell. And the reason why it's so important is because it's critical to brain function, brain health. It's like miracle grow for your brain. Essentially, it fertilizes or invigorates your brain cells to function and grow, and it propels the growth of new neurons. In fact, brain-derived neurotropic factor actually builds and maintains the circuitry between brain signals. When our brain doesn't produce enough BDNF, that's when we feel kind of impaired. You have a decreased ability to 
well, to connect thoughts, to think quickly, to make decisions quickly. It's also long-term associated with the onset of Alzheimer's, epilepsy, anorexia nervosa, depression, schizophrenia, and OCD. With the right amount of BDNF in our brains, it actually lowers our stress level and improves our cognition. Pretty amazing. And you've likely already figured out that I definitely needed as much BDNF and brain energy as possible during a four-day event. You've probably identified for yourself situations, times of the year, certain events where it would be really nice to have incredible brain function, not to run out of brain energy and to have an increased amount of BDNF. Me too. And while there are some supplements, which research tends to prove increases our production of BDNF, there's one way we know for certain, based out of recent studies, really profound studies coming out of the University of Southern California and John Hopkins University, just to name two of many, tends to indicate that human growth production, HGH, which is something we all produce naturally, but increases our HGH and BDNF production substantially while we're fasting or what's known as fasting ketosis, which is the body switching from burning glucose as its primary energy source into burning ketones or using ketones as its primary energy source, which happens in the Krebs cycle once the body has burned through most glucose and glycogen stores. In other words, our body's preferred energy source is glucose and glycogen. It's usually most readily available and it's easiest to burn. But our bodies have been designed to burn more than just one fuel source. However, it's going to burn whatever easiest and most readily available. Kind of like if you were to look at a a fireplace and there are some big, thick logs in the fireplace and you were to throw a match in there and at the same time throw a couple of pieces of paper, well, those pieces of paper are going to go up much faster into flames than the logs will. But eventually, those logs are going to burn too. And that's how our body works. Once we're out of glycogen or glucose, the body has other fuel sources it can tap into. And it does this in the Krebs cycle. The next most available and easiest form to burn for the body is ketones or stored body fat. Now, that sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? But the only way to get your body to truly shift into burning exclusively or nearly exclusively, I should say, ketones is by burning through all of the readily available, easier fuel source known as glycogen or glucose, okay? Now, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about how to get into this mode. And there's several different ways to do it. You can do it through fasting and you can also do it by eliminating or nearly eliminating or greatly reducing the amount of glucose that you're taking in. In other words, reducing carbon sugar intake or those things that easily convert into sugar or or glucose, if you will. Now, where this gets kind of tricky And, well, maybe what we should talk about is why the ketogenic diet is so crazy, crazy, crazy popular right now. One of the reasons why is because people lose weight. It's the same reason why the Atkins diet was very popular. People lose weight. It's the same reason why the paleo diet was popular. People lose weight. It's the same reason why the Whole30 is popular. People lose weight. Like when people lose weight, everyone else is like, hey, how'd you do that? And they're like, oh, I did this. And then everyone jumps on that bandwagon and they want to like – 
put their flag in the sand at the top of the mountain and say, and declare themselves because they're like, I finally discovered it. If somebody loses weight eating a particular way, we want to believe that we finally figured it out. We want it to be simple. That's why we love these diet trends because we're like, aha, finally, we've been looking for you for decades and now we finally found the perfect diet. Everybody jump on board. The only problem is that it doesn't work indefinitely. That's why, you know, I mean, you can't deny the fact that 95% of people who go on a diet, they gain all their way back and then some. And that doesn't even take into consideration the people who maybe haven't gained the weight back, but they're terribly unhealthy. So if we know diets don't work and that keto is the, the latest diet craze, does that mean that keto is bad? No, not at all. Well, first let's talk about what is keto. What is the ketogenic diet? Well, the ketogenic diet is nothing new. In fact, I'll just bet maybe your mom or one of your aunts at some point was on the Atkins diet. The ketogenic diet is generally known for being a diet that's very, very low in carbohydrates, where the body eventually begins to produce ketones. And this is a process that happens in the liver. Ketones are a source of energy that the body can use for energy. And sometimes a ketogenic diet is called the low-carb diet. Sometimes you'll see it referred to as LCHF, meaning low-carb, high-fat. It goes by many different names, but regardless of the name given, the goal is to greatly reduce, nearly eliminate glucose and glycogen so that you can lower insulin levels. Glucose is the easiest molecule in your body. Glucose is the absolute easiest molecule for your body to convert and use as energy. So because it's so easy and so readily available, it's the go-to energy source. Insulin is what's produced to process the glucose in your bloodstream, and that's what takes it around the body, providing you with energy. Since glucose is being or is tagged as your most favorable energy source, tagged? I don't know if that's the right word, but you know what I'm saying. Like Because your body prefers glucose, your fats are therefore not needed, right? Because you've got glucose on board. So your fat in your body or any food that you eat gets stored, right? And even if you're not eating fat, you, you can be eating an excess of, of carbohydrates. Either way, that additional energy is stored as fat. And that's important for you to know because that is a means by which we survived. On a low-carb diet, you therefore decrease your carbohydrates so low that your body burns through the available glucose. And then it's going to look for, okay, what's the next most available, easiest to process energy molecule in the body? And that is ketones. Now, your body goes, actually, it's almost like a switch where it converts or it stops burning glucose as its main source of energy and it shifts over into burning ketones or using ketones, I should say. So I kind of liken this to what happens if you have a hybrid car and you were to burn through all of your gas. Well, you actually switch to another tank now, or not another tank, another energy source, and you would then use the electricity. Now, ketosis refers to a process in your body that helps all of us to survive when we're in starvation mode. That's primarily, I believe, that's what most, I shouldn't say I believe, that's why most scientists believe our bodies are adept. We're equipped to survive starvation. Now, we can't survive for very long without sleep and or water, but we can survive for quite a while without food 
because of ketosis. And if you think about it from a biological standpoint, there were plenty of times in our ancestors' histories where they had to survive famine. They had to survive long bouts of time without food. If you've ever watched Naked and Afraid or Survivor, you know what I'm talking about. Like These are really smart people who've had a chance to Google the environment they're going to be in, and they can't figure out where to find food or how to kill anything. So you know our ancestors had to, in order to for us to evolve, they had to figure out how to survive starvation, and our bodies have evolved not only to survive starvation, but many researchers now believe that it's an important part of our longevity, that it's an important part of our immune system, and it is the process by which we can kill off dead cells through something that happens when we're in ketosis that's known as autophagy or autophagy. It kind of depends on what doctor you talk to. I've interviewed no less than 30 expert researchers or physicians, I'm telling you, it's split down the middle. Some say autophagy and some say autophagy. You can say whatever you want. But it's a process that basically describes what's happening on a cellular level where you're killing off dead parts. It's like cleaning house. And it's pretty important, especially in disease prevention. And it's something we can do naturally without a pill. And the research is like, It's going to blow your mind. It's part of the reason why I realized, okay, if this is so critical to our health, then we've got to help people figure out what they need to know about autophagy and autophagy and fasting and nutritional ketosis and fasting ketosis. Because if it's this powerful, we need to know more about why we would need to use it, when we would need to use it, how to do it safely, who it's right for, who it's not right for. Anyways, back to the ketogenic diet. Ketogenic diet puts you in the state of ketosis. Now, is autophagy happening? Is autophagy happening when you are in the ketosis that happens, say, because you're eating a a low-carb diet or that's happening because you're doing intermittent fasting? Here's the answer. We don't know entirely. It has been proven in some instances to be happening, but there's also an equal amount of research mainly animal research, that seems to indicate that just about any type of calorie intake will signal mTOR. And I know this is getting too sciencey, but just basically I want you to know that just because you're in ketosis does not mean that autophagy or autophagy is happening on a cellular level. There's a chance it is. We just don't know a lot about all these things yet. I want to say that over and over again because the smarter the individual that I'm interviewing, the more that phrase comes out of their mouth. I find the people who are the most in the know are the most willing to admit that we don't know a lot yet. We're learning more and more. It's the people who are writing books and blogs and and have no medical degree or any research to back up their claims or just doing things for themselves that love to tell you, this is the only way, this is for sure what's happening. But if you talk to the people who are really on the front line doing the research, they're going to say, you know, there's a lot we don't know yet. So we all have to be open-minded and willing to look at research. And, And we also have to recognize that it doesn't serve any of us to be dogmatic about our views on metabolism, exercise, nutrition. I just hope that someday we can all agree that just because something works best for one person doesn't mean it's healthy for everyone. Now let's talk about why getting into ketosis would be a goal. In other words, why do people lose weight when they go on a ketogenic diet? Well, a couple of things happen. Number one, 
your hormone shift. So the main hormone being insulin. When we have food coming in, just about any type of food, but especially food that's higher in carbohydrates, which then converts very easily to glucose, that spikes insulin. It also tends to diminish leptin. And we want higher leptin levels. Leptin is a hormone that tells us that we're, we're satisfied or full. And it increases ghrelin production. Now, ghrelin is what makes us feel ravenously hungry, right? So think of like a little gremlin, ghrelin. If you've ever woke up in the morning and just thought to yourself, like, I can't get to the kitchen quick enough. I'm so, 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 so hungry. I feel like I'm starving. It's likely because your ghrelin and insulin levels were very high. And these hormones shift and fluctuate based on what we're eating. So by eating a diet that is very low in carbohydrates, even if you're not in ketosis, you still have the benefit of this hormone regulation. And when you're not hungry all the time, likely you're not eating all the time. And the natural consequence of that is typically weight loss. Do I think the ketogenic diet is a good plan for someone to follow? This is my opinion based on the research that's available today regarding the ketogenic diet and long-term usage with humans, not animal studies, but human studies. So based on research, based on speaking to experts, and based on just body logic and biology, it's my opinion that it's useful, it's helpful. And in fact, in some instances, it's actually life-saving. Some of those instances include treating children with epilepsy, certain cancers, MS, conditions resulting from brain inflammation, and many autoimmune diseases, even Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. For certain populations, a long-term application of the ketogenic diet does prove to have far greater benefits than suffering from those diseases. Now, what about the general population? And I think that's the question, right? Like, so, so we know that people get great results. And not all people, but we know some people get great immediate results from following a diet that is high fat and low carb. But what are the long-term effects? I can tell you that to date, there is very little research based on following people who have been adhering to a high fat, low carb diet for a prolonged period of time. The bottom line is this, and it's something that we really try to be upfront and it's something we go to great extents to educate students who are going through the 131 method. And that is, we just don't know yet. There's so much research to be done. It's not in anyone's best interest to suggest that we do something that is seemingly unnatural for long periods of time. It does affect hormones. We do know from a biological standpoint that our ancestors weren't in a ketogenic state indefinitely their diets would phase. And phasing is a cornerstone of the 131 methodology. If there's interest, I will go into greater detail and greater depth about what it looks like long-term or how you can specifically experiment with a low-carb, high-fat diet to see if that gives you some initial benefits. But my intentions in discussing it in this particular podcast is to share with you some of the methodology that people follow when they're learning how to apply the one through one method to their own lifestyle. And I, I know I've said this many times, but the one through one isn't a diet. 
It is a methodology. It's a method you apply to the way that you eat that really involves you figuring out how your body actually works, like understanding this process, understanding what it takes for you to flip that metabolic switch where you transition from being a glucose burner into being a a ketone burner. Like, what does that feel like? And what does that take for you? Because, you know, it's kind of crazy to think that we can establish everybody must consume 75% of their diet to be fat in order to get into a state of ketosis. Well, we know that that's not true. That's a general recommendation. But when we apply these general recommendations and we say that here are the rules and we announce that to everybody, then you feel like you failed when you've you followed these rules to a T and it doesn't work for you. Well, maybe the rules are different for you. Maybe you have to eat more fat. Maybe the rules are different for you and you get to eat less fat or more carbs. Like we're all so different. And that's why I am just so vehemently against any of these rules because there's only one set of rules that matters. And those are the rules that apply to you. That's what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And P.S., that's going to change. You know why? Because you're forever changing. You're changing because of your age, the environment that you live in, the stress that you're under, the exercise that you're practicing, your lifestyle choices, your exposure to toxins. All of these things affect the rate at which your body metabolizes and uses energy. So rules are just, oh, can you hear how heated I get over this stuff? They're dumb. They make you feel like a failure. They make you feel like you messed it up. Or they make people obsess about... I just can't. I can't even. Anyways, my point is, what I'm sharing with you is that I did a fast. And fasting is part of the 131 methodology, but not on a prescribed, like, okay, you have to do it every month kind of basis. You understand the value and the health benefits of doing either a supported fast, which is a fast where you're eating or taking in nutrients, or a water fast, how to do them, what populations it's right for, and how to prepare for a fast, which is why we talk about a diet that is high in fat and low in carbs. Because in order to prepare your body to do something for health, i.e. fasting for health, you want that to be as comfortable and as pleasurable and as beneficial as possible. And the best way to do that is to get your body comfortably to transition into a state of ketosis before beginning a fast. So that's why we teach how this is done, how it can be so different for each and every person. But I want to be very clear that the 131 methodology is not a keto-based program or even a low-carb program. Rather, we teach you what that feels like, what that looks like, how you can use it to your benefit. But your diet has to phase. I don't want to get real like dogmatic myself, but based on the available research to date, it seems as though experts agree your body was designed to phase in terms of your diet. Like, and when you think of the word phase, think of the word cycle. Like, think about everything the cycle of the moon, your menstrual cycle, seasonal cycles. Like, that is nature. Nature intended for us to cycle, and that includes cycling our food, our nutrition, our workouts, so many things. And so that's part of the process. It's just like really understanding this stuff from a scientific standpoint and realizing there are no rights or wrongs. So like when people ask me, is so is the 131 methodology, is that 
is that low carb or is that something you've got to do a lot of exercise or can I eat this or can I eat that? Is it gluten-free? Is it vegan? It's like, it's all those things. And it's none of those things. Or maybe it's some of those things. It's figuring out what things work for you. What works best for you? That's what's so liberating, so exciting, so empowering, so freeing about learning. That's it, about learning. That's what's so freeing about information, about knowledge, and really understanding how to take this information in, which can be quite complex at times, how to take this information in a way that's very understandable, that you can remember it, you can apply it, you can test it, and you can figure out what works for you. But one thing that we teach is that in order to reap the benefits of a nutritional fast, which I know sounds really scary to you, like right now you're like, fasting? I'm so out. I feel you. I was the exact same way. Like there was a piece of me that was curious about it and also a piece of me that believed because of, you know, 25 years of brainwashing that if you skip a meal, you're going to slow your metabolism. If you eat too few calories, your body's going to metabolize your muscles and you're going to slow your metabolism. So there's all these myths and misconceptions around fasting. And a lot of that is because we confuse fasting with calorie restriction. And there's a big difference. There's a biological difference between calorie restriction and nutritional fasting. The difference primarily is what happens on a cellular level. (laughs) It's amazing what happens on a cellular level, what happens in terms of your human growth production while you're fasting, what happens in terms of autophagy, autophagy, what happens in terms of what takes place in your brain with regard to that BDNF that we talked about at the beginning of this program. It's so profound, it's nearly magical. And once I understood the science behind it, the first thing I wanted to do was jump into a fast, and I did. And it was horrible and miserable and probably pretty dangerous because I didn't know how to prepare for it. I didn't know what to expect, and I hadn't developed the metabolic flexibility that's required to safely do a fast. And I didn't understand that there were different types of fast, the things to look for, the things to know, and that's been an educational process that's taken place over the course of the last two and a half years. It is part of the reason why I assembled a team of 10 registered dietitians. That means that they have a degree in nutritional science and all of the members of our team also, we require them to have a master's degree and practical experience working with people from an integrative health standpoint, like looking at the whole person. It's also the reason why I consulted with a team of integrative medical professionals, doctors, because this isn't my area of expertise. It's why I commissioned a team to help me with the research because I really wanted to understand this stuff from a scientific standpoint. And we're all smart enough and determined enough and motivated, I hope, enough and frustrated by the stuff that hasn't worked that we have to accept that it's time to try something different. And instead of just blindly asking some expert to give us the rules to their new latest diet and tell us what we can and cannot eat, you know, why don't we try something different? Because we've been doing that for the last 25 years and it doesn't work. Frankly, it never has long term. Never. So 
stupidity is defined as doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. Time to change that. And that's what the 131, my mission with the 131 is all about. Like, can we just stop with these, you know, new diets coming out every year? And can we just be honest and learn how our bodies work and take a look with an open mind at the latest available research and then keep an open mind instead of, you know, demanding that these things be boiled down to a couple of pages and that can be photocopied and handed to your friend in a cubicle and say, hey, here's the latest diet we're doing. Can we all just agree that we're smart enough to understand how our body works and then we're also intelligent enough to realize we're all so different? Everything else comes in phases, so too should our diet. So again, I jumped into this first fast. This is almost two years ago now and it was a disaster. But then I started down this journey, and through the educational process, I learned what was going on and how to best prepare myself. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time teaching people is exactly how to do that inside the one through one. Now, not that everyone has to fast, but those who want to reap the benefits of that, the first thing we teach you is that you should never be doing a fast just for weight loss. You know, if you are morbidly obese, you want to do that under a doctor's supervision. And I do believe there are great benefits. You are going to lose weight. But for most people, the goal in fasting shouldn't be about weight loss. It should be about improving all of the systems that make weight loss possible after the fast or as a result of the fast, but not while you're on the fast. Does that make sense? I hope so. So Gosh, I didn't realize we're coming up on 40 minutes here. So I'm going to make this a two-parter, but don't worry. I'm going to hook you up. I'll release both episodes on the same day. And in part two, I will share with you how it was I was able to use the high-fat, low-carb meal planning that we do inside the 131 and, and how you apply that to make fasting so easy. I'll also, in that next installment, talk about exogenous ketones who they're right for, who they're wrong for, my thoughts on them. And then I will share with you my amazing experience doing four and a half days of fasting during an incredibly intense live event that I was the host of. So I had to be on the stage basically each day at 8 a.m. and finished most days by, I think I'd mentioned, uh, pretty late. One night we didn't even finish until 11 p.m., but I had to be on and a lot of energy, high, high energy. And I went four and a half days, never felt better. Honestly, I've never felt more alert, more energetic, more focused, more calm. I got amazing sleep. It was remarkable. So I want to share with you the details of, of that fast and kind of the process. And that'll be in part two. I won't make you wait for it. So if you're dying to hear part two, well, it should be sitting there for you now in your podcasting app. Thank you so much for listening to this installment. If you find this really interesting, and if you you want to learn more about the 131 methodology, not a diet, but learning how to like once and for all be done dieting and understand your body and stop feeling guilty for the food choices you make and really know once and for all like how your body works, please, please join the movement. We've got to change the way we see our bodies, the way we view health. It is so much more than a number on a scale. It is so much more than just exercise and, quote, clean eating. It's learning how to be healthy, how to live a happier, longer, fuller life. So check it out. Go to 131movement, because it is movement, 131movement.com, and I'll see you in my next episode of The Shaleen Show. By the way, you are 
thebomb.com. I love you. I mean it.